Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Ben Click, and uh, I'm a professor <coughs> at uh, St. Mary's College of Maryland, down at the end of the University of Maryland. If you've not been there, you should come visit. But um, I'm a professor of English. Rhetorical theory is my first line of study, but I've been um, reading about American literature and American humor uh, and Mark Twain for quite a few years. Uh, let me say that uh, Twain had said that he would talk until he got his audience cowed, and I don't know that I'm going to do that today, but I would like, like a nod from anybody if I'm going on too long. Um, he was at one time going to do a tour, a speaking tour, with James Whitcomb Riley, and he had written this out. I don't think he ever used it, but the line was, I will speak until I'm tired, then Mr. Riley will speak until you're tired. I'm, we call it the Riley effect, and I'm going to try not to avoid, you know, I'm trying to avoid it tonight. Um, Twain would almost always memorize his performances, okay? So I'm not as brilliant as he is, so I brought a couple of notes, okay? Um, let me just say that this portrait that we have here tonight is by John White Alexander, and it's a fortunate thing that uh, I get to talk about it, and I'm not an art historian, although I do know a little bit about Twain and, and his representation in the public eye. So I'll talk a little bit about that. But one thing I would suggest is that it seems like Mark Twain is popping up all over the place, isn't he? Okay? And you may have seen the Time Magazine cover, right? Uh, this was the uh, uh, making of America. These are Americans who crafted United States history, and he is the first artist humorist on the list. Uh, Time's been doing this now for about six years. I think Lewis and Clark were their first ones, and they've had presidents. Lincoln and Roosevelt were some. Anyhow, so you see this image. Um, okay. So, um, but... The New Yorker published an unpublished essay called The Privilege of the Grave, if you subscribe to The New Yorker. Uh, they, uh, there was another strand published an unpublished essay called um, uh, The Undertaker's Tale. And those two and 24 other essays or shorts from Mark Twain are going to be published this month. I'm waiting for my advanced copy. Uh, in conjunction with Harper's and the uh, Berkeley, uh, University of California, Berkeley, where the Mark Twain papers are held, those, they're, writing, they're putting that edition together, and these are uh, unpublished essays such as those two. Now, they are, there's good reason, though, for seeing so much about Twain right now, because um, on October or on April 21st of 2010, we're going to see the centennial of Twain's death. Right? So it's been 100 years. So much like the Darwin and, uh, I guess, Darwin and Lincoln conjunction this year, you've seen a lot about that. You're going to see even more probably for Twain. And, uh, you know, there's other good reasons for hearing a lot about Twain. He's just flat out an interesting genius. I mean, I, I, it's hard to find another character like this in American literature or almost in American history, Okay. Um, he comes at the right time for the talents that he has. So let me talk a little bit about, about the artist who painted this. 
Um, the portrait is supposedly painted, and we don't know for sure, 1912, 1913. So this is after Twain has passed. Um, Alexander was <clears throat> born in 1853 and died in 1915. So I don't know, maybe, maybe painting this killed him or something. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, he moved to New York when he was 18, and he worked for Harper's Magazine. Three years later, he traveled to Europe, and he studied in Paris, Florence, and the Netherlands. Got advice from Whistler came back to the United States and, and began a noteworthy career as a portrait artist. In the early 1900s, 1900, he got, won gold medals at the Paris Exposition and he won gold medals at the uh, St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. Now, I could be kicking myself because I could be bringing you some earth-shattering information about Mr. Alexander because about three weeks ago, I was at the Twain Papers in Berkeley. I was doing research on Mark Twain as anti-imperialist, and I was reading all of the letters that he wrote from 1900 to 1910. A prolific letter writer. He wrote anywhere from, uh, you know, 12 letters to, I was reading one note. He said, I did a lot of work today. I finished 46 letters. Okay, so this, yeah, I know. So this, this guy wrote a lot. Um, but anyhow, I looked up the presidents that he corresponded with, and I knew I was going to do this talk. I'm doing one on Saturday about the presidents and waiting, but I didn't look up Alexander. But I think that there are a handful of letters that Twain wrote to Alexander. Now, that's not their only connection. And it's possible that the only way to get at what the thesis of this or the argument of this portrait might be is through another artist. Since I haven't done the research to know if Alexander and Twain actually corresponded or what they actually said. but. Um, S.J. Wolfe, in a memoir in 1910, another famous artist of the, or contemporary of, of Alexander's, um, he had painted or, um, Twain also. And he is recalling his experience of meeting Twain is in the mid-1900s, um, of 1905 or something like that. And um, he says that when he entered the hall, when Twain is living in New York at the time, he says, two pictures also attracted my attention, one of him painted in Italy, and then Alexander's charming decorative representation of the unfortunate Jean Clements, uh, Twain's daughter who had died a year before this memoir was written. And I think what um, Wolf actually says about that experience of having Twain sit for him might shed some light on what Alexander might have uh, experienced if he actually did sit for him or stand, as the picture would suggest. Um, Wolf talks a lot about how different Twain seemed in, ironically, the words are face-to-face, -face, uh, saying that he pictured that, that Twain was going to be a man who was rough-hewn in the face, rough hands, his hair being coarse and wiry. But he realized when he met him, it was much more placid in, in his demeanor. The skin wasn't as rough as he thought. The hands were more delicate than he thought. Uh, the hair was glossy and silken. And so if I'm going to give some credit to this portrait, I would suggest that maybe he got the hair kind of right. And I'll, I'll just say kind of right for, for the time being. But the hair and the head is the thing. Okay, because he talks about 
how with Twain, the head taking on such a prominence in meeting the man, okay? And he relates that Twain had talked to him, and I may not have the pronunciation of this last name correctly, but a contemporary uh, of, um, of Wolf's was an artist named Frank Millet. I don't think it's Millet, but uh, anybody know for sure? Does anybody know? Okay. Is that right? It, it may be. And, uh, that's correct. The, is he dead? Right? In the play that was revived. I, I believe you're right. I think that's correct. He, anyhow, so Twain talks about sitting for a portrait for Millet. And he says, this is Wolf writing about Millet. Um, Wolf asked him about the portrait that he sees. And he says, what, what about that portrait? And he says, well, it's all mine except the hair. Says, it was this way, Twain's talking. When I started sitting for that one, my hair was fairly long, but as the sittings continued, it grew until it was uncomfortable. So one day, without saying anything to Malay about it, I went to the barber to have it trimmed. Unfortunately, I grew sleepy in the comfortable chair. When I awoke, I saw that I had lost all likeness to my portrait. I didn't know what to do, for I was afraid of Malay in those days. So on the day of the next sitting, I hired a wig and went to the studio. When I got there, Malay at once noticed how fine my hair looked and painted it. It wasn't until the session was ended that I took it off. So if we can find that portrait, we could say, that's not his hair. I look at this one, and my first reaction is, that's not his hair. I never saw Twain. Every image I've ever seen of Twain, I've never seen it parted down the middle. Have you? And it almost looks blow-dried to me, almost in a Farrah Fawcett kind of attitude. But the other thing you will notice is that Twain often sat for his photos instead of floating for them. And um, I, I would suggest that, that a lot of portraits of Twain use a prop. And so what prop do we see in this one? This is like when I teach my son. The cigar. Well, okay. You think? Okay. Um, but he, um, Twain said about the cigar, he said, and this is, uh, this is Wolf talking about trying to give Twain a prop for his photo, or for portrait. He says, Twain says, I guess a book would look better uh, in it, um, even if the cigar is more natural. So... You know, this is, we're getting at sort of the point I'm going to try to make about Twain and his popularity and, and maybe what Alexander was after. Uh, but he says, I suppose books look better, but the cigar, the cigar would be more like me. All right? Now, if that's the case, you would think that he would have put it in the left hand because the left hand is probably the hand that Twain used the cigar in. Almost every image I've seen, he has it in the left hand the right being used for drinking or writing, okay? Or gesturing, probably. <laughs> so, now, when Wolf finished with the portrait, the, the movers came to take the portrait out. And Twain looked at it and he said, now I feel if I, if, as if I had attended my own funeral. Now, those of you who know anything about Twain, there was a, a great deal of, of preoccupation with death, and rightly so. So bear with me, see if I can connect all the dots here. 
Considering that Twain probably didn't stand or float for this when he was living, this portrait is painted from either an image, a photographic one, or a memory, or something like that. But I gotta say, this is not a very good likeness of Mark Twain, is it? I mean, you would not not recognize it, but to use two words of uh, two colleagues of mine, not at my school, but fellow Twainians, the first one said, well, it is rather wretched. And the other one said, it's awful. So, anyhow, another thing you might notice is he's wearing a black suit. And what do we picture the popular imagination of Twain in? The white suit, right? Now, it's popularized by Hal Holbrook's amazingly interesting uh, portrayal of Mark Twain called Mark Twain Tonight. And I just got an interesting little tidbit about this. Hal Holbrook is 84 years old. I think he may be 85. He still does this show. It's like four a month. I won't tell you how much it costs because I asked and talked to his agent and I just, my jaw just dropped and I said, well, we won't be bringing him here, right? Anyhow, so he's doing, his, he's doing his talk in Cleveland or something and he forgets his line. If you've ever seen it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, he forgets his lines and he stops and he turns to the audience and he says, ladies and gentlemen, that's the first time in 53 years that I've ever forgotten my lines. And the audience almost simultaneously stood up and gave him a standing ovation. And when they sat down, he had gained his place and he went back on. I mean, I find that amazing. Now, if I'm digressing, if you know anything about Twain, that's okay. That's how you tell the story. Anyhow. You know? That's absolutely correct. Because, because Twain did not take because Twain did not take the are you okay? All right. Are we still running? <laughs> um, yeah, Twain didn't adopt the moniker of uh, Mark Twain until he was in his late 20s or so. Okay, very good. We, um, in a letter to his daughter, Jean, in 1907, he writes, and let me know how I'm doing on time here. So he writes, in Annapolis, I wore the white clothes. I wore white clothes day and evening. I'm talking, I'm talking in a snow-white full dress, sallow tail, and all, and dined in the same. It's a delightful impudence. I think I will call it my don't-care-a-damn suit. <laughs> but I think I will always ask permission first. Dar madam, may I come in my don't-care-a-dams? <laughs> so the thing is, in reality, Twain did not wear that white suit all the time. It wasn't like, it wasn't like in 1906 he put it on and then just every day decided to don it, and that was Mark Twain. He, you know. and, all right. So I would like to try to make some connection between the argument that, or statement that this portrait might be making by connecting it a little bit to Twain's literary executor, um, who was Alfred Bigelow Payne, who, who was a constant companion and lit, moved in with Twain around 1906 until his death in 1910. And much like, and I also like to tie it to this notion of image, death, and life. And um, I would suggest that um, what Payne did is very much what William Herndon did with Abraham Lincoln. Promote the man after his death and try to craft the argument of what Abraham Lincoln really or the image that he wanted him to be. Um, so 
He worked closely and well with Twain's only surviving daughter, Clara Clemens, and dedicated his three-volume autobiography or biography of Twain to Clara Clemens, and saying that she steadily upheld the author's purpose to write history rather than eulogy as the story of her father's life. The problem is, is that that book is very much eulogistic, just much, very much like, you know, oh, there's Twain in his white suit and the witty man. Uh, much more than that. Um, However, there is some kind of connection about what makes him so uh, conscious in our uh, everyday existence. It seems to be this ability to, to be humorous, but turn that humor, but not be excluded from the humor. So, for example, Edison, his friend and neighbor, says, you know, an American loves his family. If he has any love left over for some other person, it's usually Mark Twain. Okay? And then William Dean House, his, his closest literary friend, says, and I love this quote, this is one of the best about an author, the depths of a nature whose tragical seriousness broke in the laughter which the unwise took for the whole of him. Emerson, Longfellow, Lowell, Holmes, I knew them all, and all the rest of our sages, poets, seers, critics, and humorists, they were like one another and like other literary men. But Clemens was soul, incomparable, the Lincoln of our literature. Now, Twain's own appeal would be in very many of the aphorisms or maxims that he started perfecting in the mid-1800s or 1880s, things like, you know, my works are like water. The works of the great masters are like wine. Everyone drinks water, right? Or I have been an author for 20 years and an ass for 55. Or a critic never made or killed a book or a play. The people themselves are the final judges. It is their opinion that counts. Now, when he was just starting, he's a journalist out in the West. He goes on this lecture circuit. And he's in Red Dog, and he's supposed to be introduced. Well, nobody knows how to introduce him. So they get this miner, and he sloughs up to the stage, a big burly miner, and he, he says, I, I don't know anything about this man, yet I know only two things. One, he's never been in the penitentiary. And two... I don't know why. <laughs> and Twain said that that was the best introduction he had ever received. <laughs> so you can see the, the ability to, the, if the joke was turned on him, he was okay with that. And in fact, he sort of valued it, and he did it in his writing. Now, let me just give you a brief history. Twain's mother was probably the beginning of his, sort of this tragic uh, comic side of him. Um, when, I mean, death surrounded his early life. He almost didn't make it several times in his early years. And he asked his mother, who lived to be 88, I believe, <clears throat> you know, hardy, and he thought the world of her. Uh, he said to her, uh, hey, you know, when I was little, did you, you know, were you wor worried that I would die? And she said, no, I, I was worried that you wouldn't. <laughs> and so he appreciated that kind of thing. But Jane loved to dance, she loved to sing, and his father was an abysmal failure. Um, you know, in business and uh, just, just about everything that he did. But he was a wonderer, so maybe that's where Twain gets some of that. How am I doing on time? What do we got? Uh, 
a wanderer. He's a traveler, an adventurer. How are we doing on time? Okay. All right. So, but, so at age five, twin sister Margaret dies. At age seven, his brother Benjamin. You know, I'm sorry about that, Ben. You know, she, his brother Benjamin dies. His mother Jane takes them around, and she's just weeping over the body. And there's young Twain, and he writes years later in his biography that it made a tremendous impression upon him, this sorrow that she felt for this death. Um, when he's 10, he's walking around in his father's office, and he trips over a corpse in the office. He watches at age, um, well, that's at age, at age 8. At age 10, he witnesses William Owsley kill on the streets of, of Hannibal Samuel Starr. His father dies when he's 12, but by far the most tragic element is his brother Henry, who he saw as angelic and he felt such guilt for, for anything he ever did wrong to him, and he felt responsible for his death, him dying on a, uh, a steamboat called the Pennsylvania, which exploded, and Twain himself was actually supposed to be on that, but he had gotten in a fight with the uh, captain, and so he didn't go, and Henry went instead. So... But so this image of death surrounds him now. Of course, we, America and we now probably, but at his time, they grieved with him once he became Mark Twain. Uh, He moved to Hartford in 1872, and his first child, Langdon, died when he was around two. Twain felt responsible. He's in the back seat of a buggy. His his, uh, shawl had come off. He died of of pneumonia. And uh, Twain felt horrible about this, thought it was his his fault. His daughter, Jean, dies. His daughter, Susie, dies. His wife, Livy, dies. And so this is all around him. But Twain keeps living, right? He he keeps on going. And um, some of his harshest work is during the time that this would have been painted. And this is at the turn of the century, around 1900, okay? He has lived 12 years of his life, not in succession, but over 12 years of his life abroad, all right? He's crossed the ocean 29 times. He's set foot in every continent except for Antarctica, okay? Probably the most traveled, the most famous face, and he said... You know, I'm the most conspicuous man in the world. And he was right. There's that edge of being a braggart, but the truth in it. Anyhow, when Payne took over his work after he died in 1910, he suppressed Twain's most misanthropic kinds of writing. For example, you may be familiar with The War Prayer, which doesn't get published until years after. There's another novel that is sort of bastardized, called The Mysterious Stranger, in which Twain ends up with a character who says, basically, all of this world is just a dream. Okay, so what I'd like to do is suggest that this, this portrait might be sort of the look of, of, you know, let's remember Uncle Mark who can, can guide us with his humor there's a bit of sorrow in the face, but there's wisdom there, too. And there's sort of a, an elevation of the man. <clears throat> okay, so that's all I have to say so that I would take questions, all right? Um, yes? Twain went bankrupt after his wife died. And Henry Ford um, said, I'll pay all your debts, and you've got to go on the circuit. And within six months, he paid Henry Ford back. Well, 
close, close. It's, it's actually, it's actually uh, Henry Huddleston Rogers, who was the, the baron of Standard Oil, who, who tells Twain in, you know, in the late 1800s, you know, Twain seeks his advice, and he says, I'll stave off your, your creditors, but you have got to go and earn your money. And the reason Twain is living out in, in Europe, because unlike today, it was much cheaper for an American to live in Europe at that time. So, um, so uh, and Twain never gave up. The reason he goes bankrupt is because he has a publishing company and he throws all this money into this page typesetter machine. Okay, and they fail miserably, right? Um, and so uh, <clears throat> what he does is he goes on this world lecture tour and he did not want to lecture anymore. He did not want to be on the stage doing these talks. But he does this tour supposedly around the world and he writes a book called Following the Equator. And that's where he begins to perfect the aphorisms. You know, you know, you know, when you meet the Almighty, <clears throat> you know, don't try to Kodak him or get his autograph. Hell is full of people who've tried that. And leave your dog at the gate. Heaven goes by favor, not merit. Otherwise, your dog would go in and you would stay out. Okay? You know, and, 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 you know that's a long one. But he would have these short maxims that he would use, too. All right, so that's just a little bit. And you're absolutely right. Um, and that's true yeah. he was on. Like, about time? Let's take a couple more questions. No, okay. actually, I have Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Good. Well, I'll stay as long as you guys want. So go ahead. Yeah, it's just, it, that's the trip he was on when Susie died and he couldn't get back. Absolutely. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, he felt, he started seeing death as the release from life. And his reaction to those things would be, uh, Susie died in her home. Because she would go over to Hartford, practice her singing, and she, got, she died of spinal meningitis and kind of went crazy the last few days. And, uh, and, you know, Twain tries to make it be something that he can bear. Okay, and uh, I was out when I was in California reading those letters. I just actually had to hold. Well, I didn't put my hands on the real ones because the good archivist. Yes, and uh, to read these, I thought, well, I'll see tears on the page. But it's interesting. He often would cross out his in his letters. In the letters that are the most sorrowful, there is no glitch in the style. It just seems to flow right out of his heart and head onto the page. And they are hard. I mean, I, I'm sitting there getting teary-eyed reading it, you know. Uh, oh, Livy's is quite hard to read, you know. So, Yes? Could you talk a little more about Twain's relationship to the house in Hartford? It seems to me to be um, invested with an awful lot of um, care and personality. And um, I, I'm surprised that it's... It's not really consistent with somebody with such great wanderlust. You wouldn't think there would be so much investment. Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me just tell you a couple of things about the Hartford House. First of all, if anybody can go there and help it out, because it's really <laughs> in bad shape financially. Uh, okay, and if you ever go, it is an amazing thing to see. Um, Twain entertained almost, I mean, several times a week. You should see the bills that they would get. Okay. And this is a good question, Ian, because when you go in that house, it is so ornate. Tiffany did the painting, the carvings in the walls. It, it is an amazing thing. Now, Livy spared no expense in buying things. She would give piano lessons to the girls down in New York. She could have found a piano teacher in Hartford. She got dresses for $300. And if you compare 
Those dresses, which were made by a Parisian designer and then shipped to New York with the salaries of his highest paid employee, George Griffin, she paid more for one dress than his employee received in one year. And he kept six or seven full-time employees. So the question is, you know, what was he doing? He had made the literary elite. He was in the East, and he was keeping up those kinds of appearances, so he felt a tremendous pressure. Now, I will say this. He loved the other side of it. If you read the bills from, there's one October, November, and December. He orders 1,200 cigars. Six, huh? Six hundred or six, uh, six boxes of two hundred, and they cost nothing, like three bucks. And the oysters, the 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 uh, fresh fruit, it, it's it's five times as much. So they're lavishly entertaining. So that dichotomy of who he was was there in his life, and this is where the pressure comes as he's going bankrupt, and his skills as a literary person are diminishing to a certain degree. There's so much pressure, and that's when they leave. And what time we got? Six thirty-five. Time for two more. Okay. Well, of course, Jane died because she was eighty-eight years old. You know, she's a. But um, the let's see. You know how Henry died. Um, the mortality rate of youth in the 18, mid-1800s was a little bit higher for children, so Margaret and, and, um, uh, and Benjamin. What? He had a sister named Pamela, and also, of course, Orion. Was his yeah. Well, he wished Orion would have died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Orion was the incarnate of his father, of, of an abject fail. I can't remember how Pamela died, but that was a crushing blow to him, too. Well, she didn't die of epilepsy. She, it was Christmas Eve, and she, she had come back to the, um, uh, it, it's not Jane, but Jean. She came back to the, to, she was doing well enough in, in her uh, quarters to be able to come to the house in Reading, which she called Stormfield, and she wanted to recreate the Christmases that they used to have at Hartford, and she went to take a shower or a bath she had an epileptic seizure in the morning and uh, drowned. Uh, for me? Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so, yeah. So, and, and it's easy enough to find out, right? So. Yeah, the reason I ask is because uh, in Huckleberry Finn, there's also a steamboat scene at one part of the book. And then in another part of the book, his dad is found in a house. Yes. Yes. Which kind of seems like, except in the story, Jim found. Well, let's put it this way. If you read Tom Sawyer and then read Mark Twain's autobiography, which, by the way, is coming out soon, within a year, it's going to coincide, and this thing is going to be, the people at Berkeley are doing an amazing job on it, but it's the most anticipated thing because Twain wrote down how he wanted that biography to be written, and so they are painstakingly going back through. But anyhow, um, um, in terms of... uh, his father dying and, and uh, the, the Jim finding uh, the father, or Pap, and then holding it away from Huck. If you turn to Tom Sawyer, I mean, that book is, 
if you see a scene like the whitewashing offense, that happened. When he gives the cat the medicine, that happened. I mean, you, you can, I, I've got a book that, that shows exactly where you can find all the passages where this occurs. There's a photograph that was in Innocence Abroad. Yep. Yep. Which, if, if you've never read it, that was his first success and his largest selling book in his lifetime. 120,000 copy in the first year. Did you have a question? And then that's the last one Ian oh, okay. says. Um, university, well, no, actually, actually, I think if you, if you Amazon.com it, it's because it's, it's not come out yet, okay. but it's supposed to be this month, uh, but I think they'll probably run late on that, so look for it soon. It's called Who is Mark Twain? Who is Mark Twain? That's the name of it, and you could actually email Harper's and find out, okay? So thank you very much, thanks for coming, and I hope that was interesting to you.